1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Our guest on the program today is Noel Pinnington, author of A New History of Medieval Japanese Theater No and Kyogen from 1300 to 1600.
3: Noel, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me, Andy.
2: Yeah, I really enjoyed your book. As, as I was saying before we uh, started recording, I know next to nothing about this subject. So it was very uh, fascinating to kind of dive in. Oh,
3: Well done for looking into
2: it. <laughs> Could you tell us how you first became interested in medieval Japanese theater?
3: Uh, yes. Um, well, uh, I um, happened to be in Japan uh, for my brother's uh, birthday uh, a long time ago back in the nineteen eighties and uh was invited to go and see some uh Noor theater and when I went to see it um I really wondered what on earth this thing was um there were uh it's a very strange sight when you go to see Noor especially in japan um, first of all, I was warned beforehand um don't clap uh at the end of the performance that's uh Um, beneath uh, one's dignity and so therefore um, you sit in solemn silence and uh, some very elderly figures uh, come onto the stage with masks and props and so on and they um, speak in very very deep um, throbbing sort of voices a kind of chanting and they move very slowly and uh, very little seems to happen on the stage um, and then finally, at the end, um, they kind of silently drift off the off the stage, and you're not allowed to clap. And you wonder how how was I supposed to react to that? Looking around at people, I saw people were there were several people were asleep um, at the end, and um, I wondered what on earth you know how what this this thing was. I mean, it seemed less like a dramatic performance and more like an ancient ritual. Um, and so that uh, prompted in me at the time um, this desire to know what on earth was this thing. Um, so that's really where it comes from.
2: Yeah. Um, and so you mentioned the, the performances being these very slow, austere events. I gathered from your book that that's not how they would have been performed in the time that you're studying, 1300 to 1600. Is that correct?
3: <laughs> yes, yes that, that, that is right. So um, there's a sort of belief in Japan that... Uh, these traditional arts are are totally unchanged, and so the general discourse that you hear when you're in Japan is that the amazing thing about noise is it exactly the same as it was 600 years ago, um, in the in the late 18th, late uh, 14th and early 15th century when it was developed. So. Um, and there is a certain amount of truth to this. Uh, uh, there are elements that are preserved, but as you surely know, um, in performance, uh, what happens is that many aspects of performance can't be recorded um, easily. So the things that can be recorded easily are, are really the, the scripts, the play scripts, uh, the words that are used. But all the rest um, with performance evaporates when the performance is over. And so really it's become more and more apparent uh, that in, in recent years that at least for the first 300 years um, of uh, the development of Nore, um it, it changed fairly rapidly. And the ways that we can get access to this information, um, and one is by looking at performance records. There are a few performance records that say, you know, at 10 in the morning we started our performance and we did 10 plays and we finished uh, by early evening. And so we know that the the speed in particular of performance um, has a uh, got slower and slower and slower. And and people have come up with theories why it became slower and slower. And alongside it, going slower and slower and slower is a funny thing, really. Um, It seems that voices have got deeper and deeper. I don't know why that is. Um, And so the old idea was that um, back in the 14th century, um, ordinary people were so kind of sophisticated in their aesthetic appreciation, that they could really sit and enjoy a performance that went on for ages and nothing happened and was very, very slow and was extremely subtle. And that's a total contradiction of common sense. I mean, we can't see kind of peasants going to a performance of Noah and sitting through this thing that just sends most people to sleep. And so, although it is a wonderful thing, gnaw performance today, but it's clearly a very different from what they saw, and probably what they saw, well, we've got some records of kind of uh, reactions in the 14th century to performance of plays. People got extraordinarily excited and started jumping around. Um, And there's a very famous scene where they got so excited um, that Uh, a whole kind of set of stands in which an audience was sitting uh, collapsed from the people jumping about Um, and people were so overexcited they went and started um, grabbing the women who were watching and taking them off and raping them in the bushes and um, grabbing swords from the upper-class samurai and and laying about them and chopping people's heads off. This was because they were so stimulated by the performance they saw. That would be very unlikely to happen with the performances we see today.
2: Yeah, or, or any performance today, for that matter. That's quite an extreme reaction. Yeah, um, th- this is interesting because a, a sort of similar thing I, has happened with uh, Shakespeare, though not as extreme. You know, there's lines in Shakespeare plays where people talk about the plays being two hours long and they're performed now, they're three, three and a half hours long. So so I wonder if there's a sort of general rule that plays get slower over time. I'm not
3: sure. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Probably something to do with the attempt to preserve over generations. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you.
2: No, no, that's that's great. So you've talked a bit about uh, no theater, but uh, there's also a form called kyogen. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly that you talk about that is, you know, seemed like sort of a rough equivalent of maybe the the, the Greek satyr plays or something, the kind of short entertainments between the longer, more uh, maybe serious performances. Could you talk a little bit about kyogen and, and how maybe that's been less well known in the West?
3: Ah yes, yes. That's that's an interesting question. How well known it it has been or hasn't been? Yes, um, the origins of Kyogen are um, uh, difficult to place because of um, um, names, naming conventions. So that it only started to be called Kyogen in in the fourteenth century, and. Um, it's possible that it was called something else before and so has a longer history than we know. Um, but in any case, Kyogen, uh, the great com- contrast that we see between Kyogen plays or skits and Nor plays is that for a long period of their development, um, they were not scripted, i.e. scripts weren't written down for them. And so there were much more things that were performed uh in a sort of uh, improvisational way. I think probably uh, on the one you had two actors on the whole and probably they had a series of techniques for improvisation and they would take a general uh, kind of story or subject um, and then they would perform them. So Kyogen today is interesting because... Uh, it seems to have been much less affected by this uh, retardation over the centuries. And so, if you go to Kyogen today, um, you find that they're much easier to understand. Um, the language is much closer to modern Japanese. Um, and also, they're much quicker and livelier. And also, they have this co- uh, comic aspect to them. They very often have kind of moments when people laugh. And they have a very sort of powerful. Um, um, kind of feel-good factor um, And these have become more and more popular in recent times uh, in Japan. And the actors of kyogen have been less constrained by tradition. And so therefore you find that there are quite extraordinary kyogen plays about modern issues like um, uh, nuclear weapons or, or ecological disaster. Um, so... And yet Kyogen is still one of these arts from the Tokugawa period. That's from the 17th to the 19th century, uh, which uh, were subject to this long period of preservation when essentially Kyogen actors weren't allowed to change their repertoire nor their methods, uh, just as tea ceremony masters weren't supposed to. And in many arts in Japan, this was the case. So that when you see Kyogen, Certain kind of characteristics from the, uh, this uh, warrior period, the 17th to 19th century, um, are very apparent. One of the aspects of this is that actors weren't supposed to uh, rely on their own personalities. They were more embodying a tradition. Um, and so rather than have these uh, great actors who are, who have personalities which the audience recognize and and expect. Actors are very self-effacing. And this has a strange kind of uh, impact on the performance. Uh, We might love to see someone like Laurence Olivier um, with his tremendous kind of personality that comes through all his roles, um, or maybe Kenneth Branagh doing um, Hamlet or something like that. but a great actor, really, in Japan is someone who sees his life as being, to some degree, self-effacing, and also, to some degree, um, dedicated to the, to, the, to the audience and putting themselves aside, dedicated to tradition. Um, and this creates this extraordinary kind of uh, pure, ethereal kind of atmosphere. Um, it's as if we're in a kind of um, empty empty world of the mind in which a performance appears before us um, that is simultaneously ancient and also being performed at the moment um, so that when we laugh it's more like a kind of Mozart scent of, sense of of kind of joy a sort of a joy is, is at the same time kind of uh, eternal and ethereal um, anyway I'm being a bit impressionistic here
2: no, that's great. That's great. One of the things you said about Kyogen that I thought was interesting is that there are a lot of contemporary Kyogen plays, which sort of implies that that's not true of of No. <laughs> uh, I, I know of some some examples of of contemporary No plays. I know Yukio Mishima wrote some, but is that is that more the exception than the rule? Is it is it mostly the kind of old repertory that gets or that gets performed?
3: Yes, absolutely right. So. Um, yes, there have been attempts in the twentieth century, in particular, to to create no plays, um, and the traditional no uh, acting schools in general don't perform them. Um, mm. So we have this interesting situation of these old schools, which can be traced all the way back uh, to the to Zayami, who um, and and to the kind of um, the troops that we know of from Nara in Japan in the in the in the 13th century and their continuous lines um, and this gives them tremendous uh, uh, legitimatory uh, uh, characteristics. So so on the other hand we have people who are who train in Nor and interestingly enough most people who you know, there is this tremendous thing of learning to perform now that people love to do in Japan, and many of these people are, uh, I mean, I think the majority are women. So you have this kind of interesting aspect that there are women's troops who perform, um, and they're regarded as being um, non-traditional in a sense, because because usually the traditional performance are all done by men. And so these people are more experimental, and they're more likely to put on uh, um, uh, modern plays, yes. Um, another uh, sort of alternative group of performers is actually Western performers. There are a number of modern Western performers, um, and there are particular kind of troops that you can find on the internet if you go on online. And there have been a many modern Japanese, uh, sorry, modern uh, English language no plays that have been written and then are performed by modern performers. Um, and uh, these are very interesting uh, to, to go and watch, or and, and there are films of them you can watch. Yes.
2: this is, So that kind of leads me to a question that's a little bit outside of the purview of your book, but I wonder if you might uh, hazard a, a, an answer anyway, which is no theatre was very influential in the early 20th century in Europe. Uh, thinking about figures like William Butler Yeats, Ezra Pound, Arthur Whaley, these were people who were, Western authors who were very interested in no theater. Do you feel like they kind of knew, understood the significance of no theater or was it, was it kind of guesswork that got a lot of things wrong?
3: Right. Um, yes, that is an interesting question. Um, I would say that really what happened was that, uh, for example, uh, Ezra Pound and Yeats, to some extent saw in uh, Japanese poetry and in, in Japanese arts and in Nor something which corresponded to thoughts they were having themselves about the nature of poetry and, and, and performance as they went forward. Um, so I wouldn't characterize it as so much a misunderstanding as they were emphasizing aspects that seemed important to themselves when we come to Arthur Whaley, we have something a little bit different there because we have a, a, a serious kind of academic um, who really knew his stuff. Uh, and I think his translations, anyway, are, are pretty reliable. Um, I think he was an extraordinary character who, who was able to uh, understand a great deal about Japan without ever having gone there, as far as I understand. Yes. Yes.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Could you give us a sense of kind of, if you were to go see a note play around 1500, what would you see? What would be the costumes, the set, the theater? What what would the audience look like at that time? Right.
3: So um, yes, the 15th century. So uh, interesting kind of situation. So um, probably... Uh, we would see certain types of performance, and one kind of performance would be this thing called Kanjin, which was very interesting. Uh, Japan had just got um, um, started to have really a, a cash economy, and so it became possible for ordinary people uh, to to pay small amounts and yet uh, uh um be able to have access to these performances. And so the performances, the performers, sorry, were playing to the crowd, um, and you had these huge crowds. On the other hand, you had uh, a elite performers, uh sorry, elite uh uh patrons um who probably had very different tastes. So probably a great variety of, of styles of performance. Um so One of the things that we know about that we we um, uh, can't see today is there was a great tradition of uh, demonic performance, and so you'd have these actors that specialised in coming on as kind of demons uh, onto the stage, and they were definitely supposed to be as frightening as possible, Um, and they would kind of they would have uh, uh, masks made for themselves. and they uh would uh do as best as they could to uh move very violently and and make a sort of violent sounds um and You always had this uh extraordinary kind of group of percussion players in the background with the with the Noel flute. The no flute was made in an extraordinary way. Uh, that meant the overblow was not an octave. Most flutes, if you blow them too hard or record it too hard, you hear a sound which is an octave above um, the note that's normally played. Nor flutes were made in such a way that instead of getting uh, an octave above the sound, you got this very, very shrill um, uh, uh, disharmonic uh, sound, uh, basically a seventh. um, So that It created this this very kind of scary noise. Um, And then you had this kind of thumping uh, uh, drums of various kinds being played. Um, And so you could have that kind of performance. On the other hand, um, in the 15th century, uh, when you looked at uh, performances before the shogun, elite performances and so on, um, there was a kind of move towards... uh, away from that kind of scary performance uh, towards something that was, that was very elegant, uh, very beautiful, um, that involved uh, beautiful costumes. Um, and we had a period when there were kind of master actors who were uh, stars of the stage. And so these actors would bring into their performances um, uh, tremendous dances uh, and um, uh, lovely songs uh, probably songs that at that time were not felt to be old-fashioned, uh, but more like um, popular songs of the time, especially uh, warrior songs, um, so that these actors would come on and do these plays which probably lasted about 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Um, and they were more like opera, really, opera than, um, than plays in that uh, dance, costume, uh, music, uh, singing, um, were key parts. And they. one thing we know about performance is that they started slowly um, and then got quicker and quicker towards a kind of denouement. Very often the, the uh, person we were seeing on the stage, uh, the key main character would be a, a, a sort of um, so, uh, someone who is dead, uh, a ghost who is appearing... Uh, gradually, we, when they first appear, they appear as a living, ordinary person, and then gradually, as night comes on, uh, they would be they would reappear transformed as who they were in in real life. Now they're in the in the world of the dead, uh, and they would have this extraordinary kind of uh, beauty. But also, they would sing songs that talked about uh, their suffering in the in the afterlife and talked about their Tremendous memories of the beautiful lives that they lived. Um, this this was the sort of scene that we would see. And then these would be interspersed uh, with these comic skits, which really relieved the atmosphere and gave people a chance to laugh uh, before you were plunged into another world of the past. From
2: that description, it really sounds like this was a very poetic and almost philosophic style of theatre. Would you say that's accurate?
3: Well, when we look at the plays that are written at that time that survived to the present period, um, what we notice is that they're not really plays that tell stories um, in the way that plays do um, if we go today. If we go today and see a play, uh, we expect to see actors impersonating individuals and then we expect to see them actually enacting stories from the past. Um, sorry, not from the past. So enacting stories which have already been written but we're seeing before our eyes being played out. So in law, what we see when we look at plays is that they're more in the way of uncoverings of, of, of events and also of uncoverings of psychology. And so um, we'll first of all see someone come on and be uh in disguise very often. Um, but then gradually, what happens is, in dialogue with a, with another character on the stage, um, the psychological roots of the person they are are exposed, um, and so it's a kind of progressive deepening and investigation of the psychology of individuals. These are particularly the plays that are written in the early 15th century, and it's not the case with plays that were written later, for example, in the 16th century, which are much more um, based on uh, the inaction of of, uh, dramatic events. And so there are really two types of play in the No Theatre. So... In a sense, yes, they're they're more sort of philosophical, the earlier ones, and then the later plays are much more ones which are, uh, if you like, uh, visual extravaganza or or spectacles um, in which we see great stirring events being being played out on the stage, Um, and that's another kind of play that we get.
2: Could you tell us a bit about the influence of uh, the different religious traditions of Japan on no theater at this time? I'm thinking particularly of Zen, which I believe took root in Japan around the same time. Is that right?
3: Ah, oh, yes. So um, this is a, th- a, there's a sort of um, history of discussion of this issue, issue, and by and large, what people say is that the way in which actors visualised their own um, behaviour, their own uh, arts, their own training, was very much influenced by a language related to Zen and to Buddhism. Um, But we see very little sign of uh, Zen, in particular, in the stories that are being performed. So that, for example, uh, if we see a play like Sumidagawa, where we see a woman who's had her um, child stolen by slave traders and has been driven mad and is wandering the countryside of Japan searching for her son, um, she then comes to uh, a particular river. Uh, where there's a ferryman, and as she's crossing the river, all the people on the boat think, oh, there's this lunatic old woman raving away. Um, But she suddenly sees on the other side of the river that a child is being... uh, uh, There's a memorial for a dead child being performed. Now, that memorial is... um, being carried out using the popular Buddhism of the day, which was Am- Amida worship, uh, which consisted had very little to do with Zen in the sense that we think of Zen, but was really popular Buddhism um, trying to aid people in the afterlife to get on to a better future. So, in that particular play, she is uh, um, she has her um, madness. Uh, cured, if you like, by seeing the dead spirit of her, her son on the other side of the river uh, in this memorial service being carried out by local villagers. Um, so we see there that uh, the whole Buddhist setting of the play is really not a Zen one. It's nothing to do with meditation. It's nothing to do with the, the idea that everybody has a Buddha nature or anything like that. It's more to do with popular Buddhism. However, uh, the aesthetic tastes of the people at the time when that play was written, and especially of the shogun, were very much to do with with uh, Zen. And the shogun at that particular time was actually used to dress up as a Zen monk and um, uh, surround himself with what he felt were Zen-style paintings. And so they liked that sort of aesthetic of Zen, which was a kind of gradually moving towards a kind of minimalism, uh, a kind of, uh, what will we say, symbolism. Um, so we see in the aesthetic uh, of no performance and the ideas of no actors, a good deal of influence about Zen. But in the stories of the plays, we find that they're more related to uh, Shintoism, or that is local shrine worship of local gods, um, to do with legends, to do with the the local gods, uh, and to do with more sort of popular Buddhism about salvation um, and about uh, what happens to you after you die, about your karmic suffering uh, for evil deeds you've committed, that sort of thing.
2: One of the things you write about in the book is how Japan didn't really have much of a theatrical tradition at all prior to this period. China, I think, has a much longer theatrical tradition. Does No reflect at all the influence of, of uh, the Chinese theatrical tradition on Japan?
3: Well, that, again, is a tremendously interesting question. Um, the whole study of Noh has been uh, at the hands of people really in the 20th century, and in the 20th century, uh, as you probably know, um, the pre-war period, uh, the pre-Second World War period, um, there was a, a, uh, an intense feeling that um, Japan had its own traditions, which were nothing to do with China. And they didn't like the idea that people tried to link these two. Necessarily, I say they, it, of course, it depends on the scholar one's got in mind. But there was a general ethos of of the sort of uniqueness of Japan. Um, so, but if we look at the record, what we find is, before Nor, there is no mention at all of um, uh, of uh, um, any kind of uh, theatrical tradition um, that we can see. Apart from comic comic theatre, there are there are uh, small signs of of comic skits being performed, going back quite a long way, um, and there's no no one's ever found any kind of link between these and chinese traditions however there is the possibility that those zen priests who came over from china uh, in the 14th century may have brought some knowledge of a of a particular kind of uh, popular uh, chinese theater at the time however there's no absolutely no uh, record of any kind of influence and well Um, In terms of subject matter, one can possibly see a kind of link between 15th century plays uh, and and plays that were being put on in China. Uh, But if so, uh, there's no no actual smoking gun, I think we call it. We can't find any evidence uh, providing a link. On the other hand, I think uh, in my book, I've tried to trace ways in which I think that Uh, the normal view which is that this theatre was created in Japan spontaneously Um, it's a fairly convincing view, uh, one that we can go along with, Um, but it's also a particularly interesting uh, uh, situation because we really don't have a case that I know of um, where we can see a theatre appearing out of, if you like, out of nothing appearing spontaneously in the world, as definitely in the European tradition and the Indian tradition, which are the only two traditions I really know, um, uh, wherever there's a theatre, there's also a history of theatre. So it's very interesting, especially as we have an actor, Zayami in particular, who wrote a very detailed description of what he thought theatre was, what he thought performance was, how to write plays and so on. We actually get a, a kind of very rich view of a theater right at its beginning, which is is something I think that's uh, unique in in the world and that's an
2: incredibly valuable thing to have that i it strikes me that you know I can't think of a of a similar example of a of a, a playwright also writing a very detailed and extensive kind of theoretical analysis of theater in the Western tradition until perhaps Goethe or, you know, even, even Brecht. Uh, so let's talk about Zayami a little bit. Uh, he's kind of known as one of the, if not the central figure in the history of No. Um, who was he and what was his significance?
3: Well, um, he was, uh, the son of a traditional actor, uh, in a troupe that was, uh, In the 14th century, it was generally the rule that um, acting troops or performing troops uh, belonged in some way to uh, temples, to large temple organizations. Uh, Temples wouldn't be a building like just a temple, but would be a whole series of kind of um, um, uh, temples and sub temples and things like that. Um, So he was born into this family of actors, and uh, we know about... um, him that at a very early age he got taken up by a shogun at the time who was this shogun uh, Ashikaga Yoshimitsu um, and the shogun at that time was not that much older than, than the actor so we've got this actor who's who's perhaps 12 years old and a shogun who's perhaps 18 years old and they're uh, essentially at opposite ends of the social um, um Hierarchy in that actors were generally regarded as being um, outcasts of some kind. Um, it's a very complicated question, this about the outcast, but anyway, they they really were um, um sort of almost sort of, I know this is a sort of loaded word to use, um, but they had a kind of status almost of slaves. I mean, they they uh, couldn't resist people above them in any way. And I think if they were killed, nobody, nobody would do anything about it or anything like that. On the other hand, the shogun or a young boy um, or, or young man, youth, uh, sees this young boy and, and finds him extraordinarily uh, charming and interesting. This is a boy who there was this kind of tradition of young boy actors and uh, them having um, kind of, to some extent, uh, pederastic, uh, uh, kind of um, patrons, um, especially in the temples, monks weren't supposed to marry, and so you found these relationships developing between beautiful boys and older monks. Um, and to some extent, he'd been educated for that. He'd been taught as a young boy to perform, to be cute, to be to be charming, and he was also he ha- happened to be uh, very brilliant, um, so that he could take part in spontaneous. Uh, poetry competitions and things like that and so this beautiful boy was, we don't know exactly how um, but probably because his father was performing on a certain occasion was taken up by this uh, young shogun who was brought up to have absolute autocratic power, Uh, nobody would ever cross him and so he brought uh, Zemi uh, into his uh, life, and he would have Zemi sit beside him on a kind of couch when they watched performances. Um, and he would have him share his plate, which was apparently a great thing, and share his drinks. And all the samurai of the time who were desperate to kind of uh, ingratiate themselves with the shoguns would go and um, um give presents to this young boy, and compliment him, say how pretty he was, uh, uh, so that they would win the favor of the shogun. This was actually a kind of traditional practice it was zaami was by no means was the only person who did this. Uh, there were a number of boys in this situation anyway then uh, as a result of his connections with with uh, uh, this uh, upper class. Zemi clearly uh, had access to to, uh, elite uh, knowledge. And in particular, he learned to read and write. um, And he had access to the literary tradition and the religious traditions of the day. And so through this kind of access, he kind of fades from the scene when he's about 17. Um, And we see him going back uh, to his his temple, where he continues with his uh, normal performances and and has a a of actors that he works with, um, and then later what we see is th- this tremendous figure appearing as a as a playwright, um, writing plays that uh, other troops who are. Very popular troops are taking up and performing. It seems, um, and he also trained his his children uh, and and various relatives uh, in the art of performance, and and started writing these these theoretical works.
2: So Zayami was both a playwright and a performer. Was that sort of the norm in no theater?
3: Yeah, well, again, tremendously interesting question. It was believed at the end of the 19th (laughs) century that... the plays were all written by priests, and that the actors were these inferior working class—I mean, lower class, much lower than working class, unemployed class of people whose job was 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 to put these plays on. Um, that was the general belief. And then Zamy's writings were discovered, and when they were discovered, uh, these had been kept secret within families. But because no performers and um, in the in the late 19th century were lost their stipends from the government and were basically thrown onto the streets. They started selling these, these uh, uh, documents that they'd kept for centuries and centuries. And so suddenly there was access to all this information, not only Zami, but a lot of other information um, by, that were held in performing troops um, archives, you know, within these families. And suddenly it became apparent that a whole lot of plays were actually written by actors. And then there was this tremendous move to say, well, actually, these actors were incredibly interesting intellectual characters um, who wrote all these plays. But there is evidence that, in fact, there were plays being written by priests and intellectuals. Um, and so how much uh, the tradition of actors writing plays goes back earlier is open to doubt and in particular one thing that we know is we have no writings by actors before zami there are even his father there are no writings well as performers are notorious for having not only performers but japanese in general for keeping records of older writings um, it seems likely that performers before that were illiterate, um, and so that this is all to do with a kind of transformation of the tradition by the shift to literacy among actors. Sorry, I'm probably wandering mm. off into subjects of my no, own no, interest. No, no, that's great. Mm.
2: Um, so one of the things that we get from Zayami's writing is some sense of how his generation departed in in some ways from the older generation, including his own father. So, how did the how did Zayami's plays and the plays of his generation differ from the early the earlier no plays?
3: Well, um, most of the plays we know have passed down through families connected to Zayami, so that we always have to bear in mind that there were a lot of plays being performed in Zayami's time that were were possibly very different from Zayami's own. Um, Uh, tradition of writing but Zemi himself talked about this uh, the new style and the old style and um, it's counterintuitive it goes in an opposite direction from one that we might think of looking at our own um, that is our own western uh, theatrical tradition What we seem to have is a move from plays which were dramatic, which involved large numbers of actors on the stage at the same time, which involved, in particular, multiple voices. Um, You know, for us uh, in theatre, what we really enjoy to see is two people with a very contrary point of view of the world having dialogue, having discussion. And in that discussion, we see exposed what are the roots of the differences of the ways that they view the world. This is really a sort of central aspect of, of, of modern Western theatre. Um, and it seems that this kind of thing was prominent in the old theatre style, the theatre style of, of, of Zami's father. But what we see in Zami's time is a shift towards uh, more a mono vocal uh, kind of um, theatre, a theatre in which essentially we're exploring one individual's experience and one individual's psychology um, so that there are minor figures there um, who represent kind of, it's difficult to say, but bland sort of differing voices. One would be uh, largely a kind of detached Buddhist voice, the voice often of a of a priest or of a, um, an intellectual man from the upper classes. Then we have uh, the Kyogen actor who appears in Noel plays, who often represents a kind of lower class, slightly sarcastic, um, mocking kind of voice. Um, but they're very much minor characters. And set against them, we have the one voice of the main actor, um, which may sometimes be a pair of actors. Uh, but generally they don't differ in their in there. I'm using voice in this sense of a kind of situated view of the world mm-hmm. expressed in language um which is common to you know from Bakhtin and people like that so there's a shift away from what we might call the theatrical uh to to this kind of uh one voiced um um monolithic uh kind of play um Which is which is um, So that's one big change. We see the reduction in the number of performers, the reduction in the number of voices, and we also see. um, So instead of having, say, uh, several scenes situated in different places coming on um, several acts, what we actually tend to see is uh, two acts, two act plays, and those acts are in the same place, basically, in daytime and in nighttime. Um, So it's a kind of shrinking down um, um, of the play tradition in Zehemiah's time. But on the other hand, what we see is a tremendous kind of um, use of poetic tradition and song traditions uh, to explore in great depth um, the the consciousness of, of individuals. Um, and that is a really the great achievement of the Noel play in this period.
2: Would a playwright like Zayami have also composed the music for his plays? Absolutely.
3: So this is the thing that we see really going back, is that it's fairly clear from what Zayami wrote that you would have a playwright that wrote a play, and then the actors would take that play and uh, put, set it to music, uh, set it to dance, um, they would they would sort of insert dances within it, um, and uh, they would also sometimes adjust the words um, to for, for various reasons, so that it seems that always the kind of musical aspect was something that depended on the actors, uh, whoever the the playwright was. Um, and this, it's quite an interesting thing. They have, there's arguments that appear in Zayam writing where he says, well, this act is no good because he doesn't understand that this kind of uh, song style um, should go up at the end and not down at the end, that sort of thing.
2: That's quite detailed. I mean, we don't have anything like that for, uh, for contemporary theatre in, um, in, in, in Europe. That kind of detailed description of, you know, this particular actor isn't, isn't very good.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, that is fascinating about Zami because he's got a strong point of view about what acting should be, but we're able to see, that's what I tried to, in a sense, to bring out in this book. Um, we're able to see through him the voices of people that he disagreed with. Of course, we can't take what he says um, as people have done. Um, I think it's unwise to take it as face value, um, But at the same time, we do see these glimpses of all these other kind of traditions that are there that are very interesting.
2: Well, Noel Pennington, I've taken so much of your time and I I just want to thank you so much for being on New Books from Performing Arts to talk about your book. I I really enjoyed the book and I really enjoyed our discussion.
3: Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me uh, uh, in this way. Uh, It's been a great pleasure.